Hello and welcome to episode number 312 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me this week is Anne Helen Peterson. I am really excited about this interview and I did my best to keep my inner 13-year-old under control. Um, I hope I did so. The paperback edition of Anne Helen Peterson's book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of Unruly Women, came out on August 7th. I reviewed the hardcover version of this book, and I enjoyed it a lot. I'm also a massive fan of Anne Helen's writing. So I had the opportunity to ask her about the book and about her work on celebrity. We talk about the narrative of celebrity image and how women are seizing control of their own stories. Her book is about unruly women who disrupt the world around them in unique and powerful ways. And so our conversation is about how women continue to disrupt everything. We talk about political unruliness, celebrity unruliness, and the way young women are challenging the questions that they are asked and refusing to tolerate behavior that they don't like and how that is very inspiring to us both. We also discuss the labor of constantly reframing the narrative around yourself to highlight the misogyny and sexism that inform those narratives. Anne Helen says some very incredible and thought-provoking things about hiding and cloaking the ideology of misogyny. That part is definitely the highlight of the interview for me. We also touch on what she's working on now, including political coverage of the midterm elections from her base in Montana and her interest in writing about country music. This episode is brought to you by More or Less, A Countess by Anna Bradley. The Somerset sisters, three beautiful, headstrong debutantes in Regency London, are discovering that a bit of scandal is a delightful thing. Violet Somerset was always the bookworm, but when a notorious rake seems intent on pursuing her younger sister, Violet does what any good older sister would do, pretend to be her sister herself to fend him off. This comedy of mistaken identities from author Anna Bradley is a delightful mix of Regency atmosphere, bold characters, and wit. More or Less A Countess by Anna Bradley is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Each episode of the podcast receives a transcript, and this week's transcript is brought to you by International Guy Paris by Audrey Carlin, the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Calendar Girl series. Parker Ellis, CEO of International Guy, Inc., advises the wealthiest people in the world on life and love. For the right price, he can make anything possible. So when a Parisian perfume heiress calls him, Parker is more than happy to oblige. Unexpectedly left a perfume empire, Sophie isn't really ready to be a CEO, and that's where Parker steps in. Just a few days with him and Sophie will be more than ready to take her family company and Paris by storm. But Paris is just the beginning. There is a whole world waiting for Parker, and the woman of Parker's dreams is out there somewhere, and he will find her one day. Dive into International Guy Paris, the first in Audrey Carlin's sizzling new 12 novella International Guy series. Also available now, International Guy New York, Copenhagen, and Milan. The International Guy series by Audrey Carlin is published by Montlake Romance and is available now wherever books are sold. We have a podcast Patreon. And if you would like to have a look, I would greatly appreciate it. Patreon.com slash smartbitches. There are rewards for different pledge levels. And I always ask the Patreon community for question ideas for upcoming guests. They're all very brilliant and have excellent suggestions. 
I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Robin, Trey, Molly, Cheryl, Robert, and Stephanie, thank you so much for being part of our podcast Patreon. Are there other ways to support the podcast? Of course there are, and I'm sure you know what they are. Let's sing along together. Leave a review wherever you listen or however you listen. It really helps people find the show if they are looking for more podcasts about romance fiction. And really, why wouldn't they? Because they are the best kind. You can also subscribe, tell a friend, whatever works. Thank you for hanging out with me every week. I am deeply honored that you do. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the show as to who this is and where you can find it for your very self. And at the end of every episode, I also have a terrible joke. And this week's joke is really, really bad. I'm very excited about it. We talk about a lot of Anne Helen's writing. And so in the podcast show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, I will have links to her Twitter feed, her columns at BuzzFeed, her articles on long form, and some of the profiles that we mentioned that we talk about in this episode. I will also have a link to her tiny letter. I mentioned that I was a fan of her writing. I very much am because much like looking at romance fiction, I think looking at celebrity and the way that we talk about celebrity women is very illuminating. And the way in which women's stories are codified and packaged for us as celebrity stories is also really interesting. So I would very humbly encourage you to take a look at Anne Helen Peterson's tiny letter because the way in which she analyzes the things that we talk about is really interesting. And it's one of my favorite things to read. I'm so excited about this interview. So let's get to it. Let's do this podcast. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Um, my inner 13-year-old is freaking out right now because <laughs> I loved your book. I am a huge fan of your re- writing, so I'm going to try to keep my squee to a bare minimum. But I love it. thank you for what you do. What you do is so cool. It, it is cool, and it was never what I thought I was going to be doing like when I was growing up. <laughs> Not at so, all. So your publicist pitched me your um, the updated version mm-hmm. Of too fat, too slutty, too loud. I read the hardcover version, and I now understand that you have added new chapters. Can you tell me about these updates? Well, it's not so much chapters as much as I would love to. Like the thing about writing about celebrity is that as soon as I like sent in the final draft, there was more that needed to be updated. So I just had to kind of uh, let it be. Like Nicki Minaj is not dating Meek Mill and hasn't for quite some time now. Um, you know, the, it's more, I wrote like, a, um, like an afterword mm-hmm. and that ties together some of what I think has happened in terms of unruliness, um, post Trump's election. So like I already had to totally revise my introduction after Trump was elected and a Hillary Clinton chapter, you know, that was, I, the election happened and then I had already submitted like the final drafts. And then my editor and I were like, well, we got to change that. <laughs> uh, so we, we went back and, and added, you know, changed some parts of the, the intro and the Hillary Clinton chapter, that sort of thing. But this new chapter, I guess it's like a, you know, a half chapter is really trying to tie together, you know, both what has happened in terms of, the women's movement, like, um, you know, women's marches and and that sort of thing and women being involved in politics, but also uh, 
like what has happened with me too, which I think is energy. Like to say out loud that you will no longer put up with this sort of behavior from men, like that's an incredible act of unruliness. And I see that very much as part and parcel of this reaction to what happened with Trump's election. Absolutely. And the the motivation of seeing someone else do that and being able to say, yeah, not only that, but also this thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And adding on to it, I know that um, from the press release I got that you've also you also talk a little bit about uh, Cardi B, Beyonce, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. What do you say about them? Well, again, <laughs> that's like what I can talk about, like what I can talk with you about. <laughs> it's not they're not part of the, the updated book. Ah, uh, okay. So tell me everything because like I saw those three names and was like, just tell me all the things that you're thinking about those people. Who cares how long this episode is? <laughs> I mean, like all of those people, like I could write a chapter about them right now. Gosh, yes. And all of them are really disrupting in different ways. Like, you know, like the Nicki Minaj chapter, not to say that like every black rapper, female rapper is the same, but like, I think a lot of the conversations that we had about Nicki Minaj's unruliness have shifted and, and transformed a little bit to talk about Cardi B's unruliness, you know, because she's in some ways superseding. Um, and, you know, replacing isn't the word, but has become more of the the person that we talk about when we talk about female rappers, mm-hmm. um, but then also like how the feud between the two women or like how there's this thought that like, Oh, there can only be one female rapper, which obviously is like just incredibly untrue. Like no one's like, Oh, there can only be one male rapper. Um, it's like, no, there's this whole pantheon of rappers at any given moment, but the women have to be pitted against each other. Um, but yeah, I think, and, you know, just any any number of women who are running for political office, uh, and especially, like, ones who are running as, uh, you know, socialists <laughs> and are saying, like, listen, this isn't a radical thought. Like, it's not radical to be, um, to, to offer these, these claims or these promises as a political candidate, and I'm confident in them. I think that that is incredibly unruly. And it's also breaking with, a, pol- a particular political narrative mm-hmm. and a particular system where you say, actually, no, I'm not going to be part of the Democratic Party process. I'm going to do my own thing with an entirely new group of people. And like everyone is shocked when that worked. Totally. Well, and also saying like, oh, well, I don't want to talk shit about these other candidates. You know, like yeah. the fact that, 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 that not playing by the typical like, oh, well, you should, you know, you should say bad things about not only established Democrats, but also like the whole Hillary style. Like what we're what we expect is for Democrats and especially Democratic women to, you know, to shit on each other. <laughs> um, and I think that if you're a, a different way and a more effective way, but still that is viewed as different and unruly, like is to say, well, actually, like, I respect them, but I'm trying to do something different. Yeah. One thing I noticed especially is um, Cardi B is 25 years old. (laughs) Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is 28 years old. I did not know anything at that age. And I certainly did not know enough to articulate an, an, an alternate path for myself doing something like they have done at that age. Now I'm 43 and I could do that now because, you know, I have, you know, two more decades of 
okay, this is the system and I'm going to opt out and I'm not going to do it. Seeing someone at that age do something so massive and be so unruly is not only very inspiring, but it is jaw-dropping to me. Do you think that this is a commonality? I mean, obviously two is a trend because it's not, but (laughs) is is it possible that unruliness is more and more prevalent among younger women who are like, you know what, how about now? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, I think the other thing, if you think about it, you know, we grew up in the 90s when there was this incredible backlash towards feminism and towards any sort of unruliness. Yes. I just wrote about, did this big deep dive into Gwen Stefani and the the ways in which in some ways she was unruly, right? Like just the way that she dressed and that sort of thing, like seemed to eighth grade me as unruly, but it was very... um, superficial. And I don't mean that as like fake. I mean, that is it, it was on the surface level. Um, and I think that that was the message that I really internalized was that like, it's weird to be a feminist. It's weird to advocate for yourself. Um, it's weird to do things that don't place you firmly within a conception of like commodity, commodity purchasing <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and femininity. And so for a lot of these women, and, you know, they're like, so they're about, let's see, like 10, 12, 15 years behind us, mm-hmm. they came of age just when feminism was starting to be cool again. So yep. some of those messages and some of those freedoms were more available to them. Um, and also just growing up with the internet, you know, like think of all the things that were not available to us because we yes. Thank really you. have access to them, you know? So like whether there's so many different ways that that can take place, it doesn't necessarily mean like, Oh, I was reading rookie when I was a teen, you know, like that's kind of a very straightforward means of accessing feminism. Like there are other ways when you have the internet of just like being exposed to different types of people and different models of femininity that, I were just like almost completely unavailable to me. Oh, me too. And the language that I have learned and the ways that I have come to understand different people have changed exponentially in the past few years. Like if you would have asked me five or six years ago what cisgendered meant, I would have been like, I do not know genders that are sisters. (laughs) Like I would not have known that was not a term that had ever been part of my daily vernacular. Now I understand it much, much better. And being able, I think, as a young person to log on and not only find people who love the same things you love, but also feel the same way you feel about things is both very empowering and also can be very isolating at the same time. To see young women grab that commonality and be like, I know that there are other people who feel this way. It's 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 like the first person who steps out is immediately followed by someone else going, yes, okay, let's do this. Yeah. And also so inspiring. Have conversations about it that sophisticate your understanding even more. You know, oh, yes. that if I did find information about something that was interesting to me, it was very one, like one directional. So like I would read an article, but it's not like I could have a conversation about it. And I mm-hmm. think that what forums for teens, whether it's Tumblr or just like comment sections, or um, I think that they provide a space if you do want to work through some of your thoughts, not even consciously, but like working through identity and your and how you feel about a different celebrity. Not to say that it's all like super positive and constructive, like, no, you know, teenage girls are teenage girls. But um, I do think that there's just much more availability of these sorts of images, these sorts of ideas. 
I know I find it very hopeful, for example, that you have young girls coming into teenage dumb where they're sort of beginning to grapple with sexuality and grappling with visible signs of sexuality that they can't control. And that is an age when things can get really toxic in a hurry. And now it feels to me that they have so many more positive assets to engage with that are like, yes, this is horrible and it stinks. And here is why. And here's what you can do to take back control. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I loved about your book was the idea that unruliness is a lot to do with control, that people are seem like they're being unruly and out of control and out of bounds when actually what they're doing is demanding that they control their narrative. Right, right. Yeah. And like that they, um, and that's why it's scary, right? Because it feels yeah. like being out of control or it feels like others are out of control when you're right. Like what it is, is that they are determining their own pathway instead of staying on that pathway that has been determined for them. One of the ways I find it fascinating that your work sort of intersects is that you look at all these women who are demanding control of, your, of their their own narratives in many ways, but you're also looking at celebrity culture, which is like like nine different parties trying to control a narrative because that always works out. Narrative by committee is always a success. Um, What are some of the parallels you see between the women who you look at as unruly and the women who are so very controlled within or by the narratives about them? Like I know you've written considerably about uh, Jennifer Lawrence Mm -hmm. and how she's still somewhat controlled by a narrative about her that started when she was 22 and she's having trouble getting out of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's such a hard thing because, you know, I get, whenever I write about a celebrity, there's always pushback of like, you don't know that person. <laughs> like, you don't know who they really are. And of course, well, that's kind of the point. Yeah, <laughs> like the only thing that we can know are the, the messages that are mediated for us, right? Like, even if we think that we have this direct access to a celebrity via their Instagram, like that Instagram filter and posting and choice of photo and all of those things are doing, are are suggesting a certain sort of image. So you can only look at the aggregate of all of those things, both what they try to say directly to you, how other people talk about them um, to try to figure out what an image is at a given moment. And I think that, you know, of all of the women that I talk about in the book and, and many other women who would be included if I were to, you know, update it today, they all struggle with maybe having an understanding of themselves that is different than how they are popularly understood. So how do you get like what you want to be, what you, how you understand yourself to be, to align with that popular understanding. And I think, you know, a lot of celebrity alienation, like personal alienation comes from seeing a disconnect being like, I'm trying to say I am this, I am trying to be this. And then they get misrepresented over and over again, because it's not actually about who the person is. It's about what need that image is fulfilling culturally. Um, So I think some stars are obviously more adept at like asserting or, or resting that narrative away. So I think Nicki Minaj is very good at it. And part of the way she is good at it. And I talk about this in the book is, um, really controlling her interviews, you know, like if, Oh, if something is like not going the way she she's not polite about like answering dumb questions, she 
rests the interview away. She says, that's a dumb question. She says, what are you talking about? Like she refuses to allow the interview to be framed in a way that is not how she thinks she should be framed. And I've seen other celebrities do the same thing. I've seen um, uh, Ariana Grande being asked, asking some radio DJ, like, is that really what you think young women think about? Really? That's what you think we're worried about? Right. No, that, that like they'll talk back. Yeah. And it used to be, I mean, I know that even when I was doing media training for interviews six or seven years ago, you know, I was coached about, you're still a guest in their house. You can't talk back. You can't challenge the question. You right. just have to spin it the way you want to. And seeing young women be like, you know what? That question's dumb. Yeah. I'm not answering it. Yeah. What? <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Ms. Minaj. I'm forever in your debt. <laughs> right. Well, in those moments, I think that um, social media rewards those moments. Yes. So more and more publicists are allowing their celebrities, they're, they're the person that they are managing to do that sort of thing. So before it, it really was, you know, it, even if a star wanted to do something like that, like their publicist would either, you know, forbid it or would after the fact arrange with the interviewer to have that cut or have it edited out because it yeah. makes the celebrity seem rude. But now mm-hmm. we're like, Oh, that's total own. <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's, it's pushing back against that apparatus in a way that I think, people are appreciative of because it exposes the, the the sort of flattening effect of the celebrity industrial complex, which is like always trying to make a female celebrity the sum of like what she wears, who she dates, her feelings about children. What are you wearing and, and, and what are you thinking yeah. about these two topics, just those two? Yeah. One of the things that you do with your writing that I really appreciate is constantly – reframing the the way that we talk about celebrities who are women and also reframing the way in which we understand celebrity culture and how very, very sexist and misogynist a lot of it is. Does that get frustrating to, to see this sort of sameness in the way gossip surrounds women celebrities? It's, it's a, it's, it's like the oldest form of recycling, <laughs> you know, but it's funny because each, it always, it morphs, right? Yes, it does evolve a little bit. <laughs> I think of it as like a puzzle. Like, how is how is misogyny and sexism working its magic this time? <laughs> what, <laughs> Let's what, find the patriarchy. Where did it go? Seriously, like, because the thing about ideology is it has to erase itself. Like, it has to make itself appear just like a natural process. That's very true. And so the ways in which it does that, and, you know, I'm making it seem like there's like, you know, ideology gods or something. It's, you know, obviously not. It's more that any sort of um, idea that is present, like it doesn't want to announce itself as an idea, as an ideology, as a, like an argument. It wants to just, because otherwise you'd be like, well, this, this thing is telling me how to feel. Like, I don't want to listen to someone lecturing me. So it has to appear, appear not like a lecture. Um, but so the, the various ways that it camouflages itself, like that's fascinating. How does, how does it naturalize itself? What is the process of like, you know, combination now of social media and interviews and, um, magazine covers and all of these different things that, that camouflage the way that an idea about how a woman should be, how is that working? So I, you know, it's always fun for me because, each time that I do one of these pieces, you know, and it's the same whether I'm doing one 
for BuzzFeed online or if I'm doing it for the book, like I use the same research strategy, which is you just immerse yourself in all of the discourse and then immediately patterns start to reveal themselves. And so when people say like, how do you choose the quotes that you're going to use? Like what I do is I collect all of them and I see the the themes and the patterns and like the ways that people um, will try to form a narrative about a woman. And then from those themes, I pick out the quotes that most exemplify that particular theme. So when you were doing your PhD, examining celebrity gossip of people who are no longer necessarily celebrities, you were working with sort of a fixed body of work. The the narrative about those people wasn't necessarily going to change too much because they were either no longer stars or also dead. Yeah. So you had a a, a specific, um, mostly set narrative about a person who was in the past. Is it harder to do that research in the present? I would say that like celebrity or classic Hollywood stars is really fascinating because the biggest ones have taken on a sort of second, second life that is so much more flat than their original stardom. So like Marilyn Monroe is now just like a poster, right? Yes. Whereas, and I and I know exactly which poster you mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably it's Spencer Gibbs. <laughs> and whereas, like her, what allowed her to become such an incredible star in the 1950s was this complex negotiation of sexuality and innocence. And then, even more than that, you know, then you add on her own agency that was trying to like she in her interviews and the way that she spoke and just who she was complicates this like sex pot image. Like she is just fascinating. She's so complicated, but in order to recover that and recuperate that, you have to go back and read only things that were published at the time. Like you can't read, you know, a Marilyn Monroe biography from 2004 because that is shaded with how we've come to understand her now, which is as a flat poster. But if you go back and you read, like there's this series of um, like three different Saturday evening post profiles of Marilyn Monroe, which are just spectacular at teasing out these nuances. So that to me is always really, really fun, but takes a lot of work because you have to do that historical research, which is not as easy as just like Googling like Marilyn Monroe interview 1954. Like You have to buy those magazines because they're not available online. You have to, um, go, you have to have like library access in order to get you know old newspaper interviews and all that sort of thing. So that to me, I mean, it's, it's easier in some ways because all of those articles from 19, there's, there will never be another article from 1954. <laughs> um, right. But still you have to try to find them all, which is much more arduous. Um, yes. Whereas doing a star now, not only do you have the problem that I discussed at the beginning, which is that, their, their star text continues every day. Like there's a new articles and and so many, but then also with the internet, like there's just so much proliferating discourse about a star. So there's like everything that the star themselves produces about themselves. So like interviews and, and sanctioned things. And then there's like everything that anyone has ever said about them online, (laughs) which is like, so basically in academia, we call that like the reception and so it's very difficult to try to do all of those things at once. <laughs> Plus you have the ways in which some celebrities become memes. Yeah. And then what the memes mean, which are separate from the narrative about the celebrity themselves. Which, But at the same time, a meme, I think, is always a very 
an excellent condensation of how that celebrity has come to mean something, right? Like, yes, they're, they're distilled versions of that, like one element of that person. Yes. So like, you know, feminist Ryan Gosling going back, (laughs) like that is an incredible distillation of part of Ryan Gosling's appeal at that time was that he was a thoughtful, hot feminist boyfriend. (laughs) Makes me also think of Jennifer Lawrence and all of the memes about her that are sarcasm. Yes. Yes. So many sarcasm memes. So with the book, with the, with the paperback release, are there any chapters that were, that have stuck with you or any people that you would like to write a whole independent book about, or is that all of them? Hmm. I mean, you could, you could do an independent book for all of them. Totally. But I think that one of the reasons I wanted to do the 10 chapters is I wanted to show how unruliness isn't, you know, it's not just the defining characteristic of say Melissa McCarthy, but how you could connect Melissa McCarthy to Nicki Minaj. Yeah. Like how you could, how this is something that works with different vectors and in different ways, but that is a uniting kind of mode of behavior in public. The the appeal and the backlash against each of them has that in common. Yeah. Yeah. The chapter that I truly love was the one about Jennifer Weiner. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think it really depends on any a, a given person's familiarity with her work to understand what's going on there. Oh, yeah. So people either well, love it or they're like, I didn't know exactly know what was going on. But if... <laughs> you're familiar with her or or if they have had any sort of encounter with classed conversations like you know low middle highbrow about um literature or even just you know any any sort of pop culture then i think it's it's an engaging chapter that that chapter spoke to me especially because i work exclusively inside romance fiction um which is very much denigrated and while Weiner's books are not necessarily romances, they have a lot of romantic elements in common. And as a person who defends the way in which women's writing is treated and defends herself against the inherent classism and sexism of the literary world, mm-hmm. she also, I think, informs and inspires a lot of romance writers to follow that same path and give much, much less of a shit because if if you're, if you're you know st- stacking up the hierarchy, um, you know Jennifer Weiner writes outstanding books about women, and yet we still don't have a valid genre classification for yeah. them because we can't call them you know chiclet or the, the latest one by the way is book club books, which is still gendered without being gendered it makes me bananas. Right. Well, and my book is a and, book club book. <laughs> yeah, your book was a book club book, but it wasn't a fictional story about women doing womeny things. But, but it's still gendered. <laughs> like the fact that my book had this pink cover, you know, and millennial pink at that, it, <laughs> it uh, you know, I think it attracted a certain sort of reader, which was great because like I want many, many, many women to read this book. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I think that men are much more self-conscious about the types of books that they will read and the types of covers that they will purchase. And I think men would be, you know, it would behoove a lot of men to read a book like, or to read, yeah, to read a book like this. And I've had many men who have read it, but it is a more difficult sell when something is gendered so strongly. Yes. Even the, um, the title 
would, I think, make men go, oh, whoa, 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 I can't look at those words. I did make, because my husband's and my uh, reading tastes overlap very slightly, and I had him read the chapter on Serena Williams, and he said it completely for him reframed a lot of the commentary about her in a way that he sort of knew what was being said was not cool and was not not stuff that he agreed with, but now he had language with which to be like, that is why it is suck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing too, is that like, yes. I think most men especially don't realize all the ways in which um, the subtle ways in which women are told to behave a certain way and how we internalize yes. that. And so, and the code. Yeah. So when you make it visible by like calling attention to those patterns, then suddenly it like it, it elucidates a lot. So that's part of the reason why, you know, I wish that it, it could have a broader audience, but at the same time, you know, you have all of these, these ideas about who you would love your audience to be that intersect with like the, the economics of book publishing. Oh yeah. The importance of the cover and like how the cover works, how the cover looks on social media. You know, there's just, there's so many different things, you know, just like studying a celebrity. Like if you were analyzing how this book sold, you would be, you would have to analyze all those things as well. Absolutely. With the forward that you wrote for the book, which was written just after the election, like I think was, you were writing about the hours after the election returns were starting to come in. Um, you wrote, this is how much America hates women. Mm -hmm. Do you still think that that's true? I mean, I think that they're so like, when we talk about misogyny, right? Like, and that's the hatred Mm -hmm. of women. I think misogyny is actually a, a good term for it because it's a word that isn't, doesn't have the word hate in it because most people say like, I don't hate women, you know, like Trump himself says like, no one loves women more than me, but misogyny is a term that encompasses all of the policies and um, day-to-day interactions. And, you know, that it's the big umbrella term for how our society behaves towards women you know, and that's everything from how do we believe women? How do we treat rape victims? How do we deal with, you know, um, maternity leave? All of these different things. Or how, how do we conceive of beauty and a woman's ability to, to age in public? You know, th- so when you add all of those things up, it might not be how we personally conceive of hate. But I do think that we do not value women in a way that we value men. And that's not just sexism. Like there is, there is a bit of both hatred directed towards women from men, but then also women themselves. You know, when I talk about how one of the things that we can do as, you know, in terms of unruliness in our own lives is to watch ourselves react to other women's unruliness, to check our, uh, inclination to see someone being unruly and be like, like she shouldn't be wearing that or she shouldn't be talking Mm -hmm. like that. Like that's as much as you can believe or agree to unruliness in theory, it's much harder to, to actually practice accepting unruliness in action. It's very true. Has writing about unruly women inspired you to be more unruly? (laughs) And I imagine you get that question a lot, but I mean, I think reporting is an incredibly unruly act just in general. So like going up and asking someone to talk to me <laughs> and, and asking them to trust me and um, then trying to, you know, 
pin together their thoughts. Like I am over and over again, asserting myself in the public sphere and it is terrifying. And net, like you, if you would have asked my mom what her like deathly shy five-year-old would be doing with her life, it wouldn't be there. <laughs> um, and you know, and I am an introvert and ditto. So to do it for me every day, it feels like crossing a boundary when I'm doing it, um, which is part of why I find it super exhausting. And at the end of a reporting day, I just like, stare at the wall and eat a hot pocket. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, I think that writing about it has coincided with me doing a bunch more reporting. And so that is something that I think about a lot is that intersection. That is very cool. My my job, because my website is my job, my job is to examine romance fiction, which most uh, people outside of the genre will dismiss as not very important. And I know that when you were, when I read a lot of your early work was on the, I think where I found you was the hairpin. Mm, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was the hairpin. Um, that there was this sense of, wait, you got your PhD in what now? Yeah. Do, do you still get that? The, wait, you, you study who and what now? <laughs> I mean, I, I get it less because people, I've, I've distanced myself from that moment. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, most of the time people are like, that's so cool. Right. And that yeah. depends, though, on your attitude towards the humanities. Um, Very true. So, like, if you think that studying the humanities and studying cultural studies um, is worthwhile, then you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, yes, let's understand celebrity more. Um, and then sometimes, you know, if you think that celebrity is bullshit, then of course you think that studying it is bullshit. Um, and I think, or if you think it's frivolous, right? But I think a lot of times, you know, the, the way that people have arrived at my work um, and, and, you know, probably I, I would guess your work as well is that like I take the pleasures that we take in celebrity seriously. Like I think if this is something yeah. that we are spending time with and that gives us pleasure, then why not think about that? Um, yes, and exactly. Come up that. with language to talk about it. And so I think that um, any like you know, people say it's like highbrow discussion of lowbrow stuff, but I think that's a silly distinction. I think it's thinking more about things that sometimes while we're actually consuming it, we're not thinking like I love being enveloped in a movie or in a celebrity narrative, but then I also love that secondary act of thinking more about it. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty much what I do when I read romance fiction. I love the I love the story of courtship and I love the emotional journey and I love the way in which women are writing stories about courtship for a majority audience of women, but I also love looking at the structure um of what is happening in the story and how is misogyny baked into it or how is racism showing up or how is really old and completely antiquated ideas about sex showing up. So the looking at the structure while you're immersing yourself in it is Really fun. Yeah. I completely like, understand. Yeah. I love that analysis. People are like, oh, doesn't it ruin everything? Like, no. No. <laughs> no, not at all. It makes it richer. Now, I know that your work has taken you way, way, way west, and you're doing investigative reporting for BuzzFeed News now. What are what are you working on? And that's really cool, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I live in Montana, which I grew up in Idaho, so it's not that weird. Uh, <laughs> and like, I to me, it's... Uh, it's home. Like it's, it's dealing with people that I, that I know and that I grew up with and um, a a kind of way of being in the world that is very familiar to me. And then, 
you know, my reporting goes, it's everything from like political journalism to kind of following the money to, you know, going to a Trump rally that's around here. And I just kind of get to follow things that I find interesting and try to um, elucidate things about the West that people who aren't from here might not even know anything about. Uh, yes. So. Yeah, I really love it. And then I also get to do my celebrity stuff on the side. So like, you know, I'll do like, you know, it's kind of my uh, re- reprieve. Like I'll do a bunch of reporting and then I'll be like, oh, now I'll write about Gwen Stefani, that sort of thing. And yet there's a significant overlap in a lot of the themes that you write about too. It's true. I mean, that's because culture is culture, you know, like I call myself a culture reporter, which means culture can mean anything from celebrity to, you know, uh, what's going on with the political race. Yeah. And, and how the po- political discussion of women and the celebrity discussion of women have a lot of overlap. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're not, it's not like there's two separate spheres of discourse, like the same themes no. really bleed into like across these, the whole world of discourse, you know, the internet, I think is such a great metaphor for that. Like, the, you know, just because you're on a separate web page doesn't mean you're still in the same browser, right? Like this, yeah, the same, uh, the same themes pervade all of it. It, it very much is. And the ways in which we are served and fed information mm-hmm. about celebrities is just as finely calibrated as our political mm-hmm. um, news feed as yeah. well, even though even even in ways we're not even paying yeah. attention to. Like I looked at one article about the wedding between Harry and Meghan Markle. And like my Google news feed is like, here's every royal that has ever been royaled ever. <laughs> Enjoy. Like, whoa. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So one of the things I read this week um, was your tiny letter about the profile of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. Yeah. And how you identified the idea that women are always being informed what we lack, specifically a penis and a phallus to measure the penis yeah. against. Um, but what also what product is going to make us better, but not entirely, because you can't fully fill the lack. It always has to be there. So the next thing can be sold to you. Yeah. And it occurred to me how much the gossip and celebrity narrative works that angle as well. Totally. Yeah. Like you can't, I mean, gossip like a classic melodrama, right? Like, so a classic soap opera is meant to continue forever. Like, you know, Guiding Light was like started in the 1930s and went until like 1990s or or like very recently. So you have to be able to string it along forever and ever and ever. And so in order to do that, you always have to have a missing piece. What is going to happen next? And so that is right. absolutely the way that celebrity gossip works. Like even a tell-all, tell-all in quotes, uh, <laughs> profile, you know, there is information that is shielded. There, there are just, you know, you get just enough so that you're hungry for more. And that, you know, that if you think about celebrity images as narratives that are continually growing, that another chapter is being added, I think it's much easier to understand both how they're built um, how they're received and how they're sustained, which is you've got to like have that cliffhanger for the next chapter. And the, and the next product is going to add a little bit more, but not fully fulfill yeah. the story. Yeah. And the next profile is going to do that as exactly. well. 
what fascinates me is that the, there's a number of people that make this happen. Like there's a the, the product and the marketing around the product and the alleged problem that this product is going to solve. And then the marketing about the product that places it into a magazine, which creates another narrative and how that same process is, is in place for celebrities. There's this person who has a thing that they're going to promote, but the narrative about them is not necessarily about the thing. It's going to be about something ancillary. And there's like a whole team of people that are involved in doing it. Do you ever look at something and be like, I could so do that better? <laughs> you know, people sometimes they're like, oh, do, do you get like pitched by publicists all the time who want to hire you? <laughs> and I think that I'm like much too cerebral for that. Like I would be like, no, we should do this. Like they should, you know, my messaging is, is a little more, uh, is maybe too nuanced. <laughs> and I think, you know, people who are publicists, like they are very effective at what they're doing and they, they're skilled in a lot of this messaging that I think I'm maybe would be too cynical being part, like manufacturing it myself, you know? <laughs> yes. I'm on the receiving end of a lot of publicity, publicity specifically for books. Um, and romance publishing is a very small world. So I work with the same publicists relentlessly all the time. And sometimes they get up and switch houses and I have to remember yeah. who they work for, but it's always the same core people. And, you know, like with any industry, there's an, a language that develops around it, but they have to come up with a reason and a selling point for each book, even though the core narrative of that book is very yeah. similar to all the other yeah. books, because they're all courtship yeah. narratives. You just have to identify the hook and the trope and who's going to like it. Um, and I could never, ever do that. I would be so bad. <laughs> but you can still see how it works. Like, yes, I see the structure. Can't build it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like, you know, I don't think that their jobs are dumb in any way. Like, no, they're very effective at, at their jobs and they're very necessary. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to try to break down how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on now, celebrity wise and political po politics wise? Um, I politics wise, I'm really ramping up because we, you know, it's, we're leading up into the midterms. So I have a bunch right. of different politics pieces that I'm working on. Um, and we'll be working on until the midterms. Celebrity wise, like I'm kind of interested right now in um, this is going to seem random, but I'm I, I listen to a lot of country music, especially when I'm driving out here. And women have disappeared almost entirely from country music, which is fascinating to me. Uh, I've noticed that too. I moved from New Jersey to Maryland, and the number of radio stations in Maryland that have country and also Jesus are are like way way bigger than the number in New yeah. Jersey. Um, like so many more, but I don't hear any But And so like, and Carrie Underwood actually has an album coming out. So like, I'm curious to maybe do something on her. A lot of times I, I don't know who I'm going to, like celebrity is much more, I get inspired by something or like I see something happen and I'm like, oh, I want to write about that. So there's, there's far less kind of forecasting. Um, in general, yeah. I'm really fascinated by whiteness and the way that whiteness is flailing. Um, you know, like just how whiteness is flailing is the best phrase. As white supremacy continues to be undermined, as it should, be, right? Yes. Um, but just the ways in which it tries to reassert itself, uh, sometimes very cleverly and effectively, and sometimes very awkwardly and um, yeah. stupidly. Uh, <laughs> I think, like, so I wrote an article earlier this year about. Justin Timberlake's Montana album, which is you know, a huge flop, but like how in a lot of ways that was him trying to like return to and, and expand his, his white masculinity. And yes, they grew in a really fascinating way. So like that to me, you know, people are, uh, 
when I first encountered like the idea of thinking of whiteness as a race, which again, ideology erases itself. So whiteness erases itself because it wants to erase its supremacy. Um, I first encountered those ideas in grad school and they were incredibly, um, they were incredibly persuasive to me. Like they, they really changed the way that I thought of myself and of critical race studies. Um, Cause usually I think in undergrad or just in life, like race is something that everyone else is. That's not white. Um, it is not an identity that yes. white people have. They don't think of themselves as raced people. Um, like even the, the phrase non-white, right. Assumes that white is just an entity and everything else is not white. <laughs> right. White is a natural quote default. White is without color. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think it, but it's only been recently that whiteness as like, a, a, you know, like white privilege, even that phrase has become something that um, more people outside of academia are realizing and interrogating and it's uncomfortable for a lot of people, like it is understanding yourself as, um, you know, understanding your own privilege and also like understanding the ways in which your like whiteness has wields different powers in all these different scenarios. It feels bad for white people. And so there's a lot of um, discomfort around it and looking at that, I think whether it's in how it manifests in celebrity um, or in politics or in everyday interactions or in books or in, you know, all sorts of different discourse like that. I think mm-hmm. that's probably going to be the core of my next book, but working towards there. Very cool. The thing about the Timberlake article, and I'm trying very hard not to like, just make this an interview of that was so great. The thing that you did, but the thing that you did was so great because I could not articulate what it was about that album that just made me go, no, yeah. <laughs> seeing it as an attempt to codify a white image for himself yeah. in a way that, oh, that's, that is exactly why I find all of this so unappealing. Right. It is, it is finding that language that is such a crucial skill. Right. Right. Totally. Have you looked at Casey Musgraves if you're looking at country stars? So she, I mean, this is the thing of her. She's like a, she's an indie star whose music some people call country. Like I love, yeah, her. I love her, but she's not played on a single country station. Um, That's what I've noticed. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. And yet everything about her image is codified as I'm a country person, but like a certain sort of country person. Um, yeah. She is like a city country person, which yes, uh, she's like a person who grew up on the farm grew, who then moved to the city, um, which is very different than, you know, a lot of country stars. There are people who grew up in the city who now pretend like they live on a farm. Uh, <laughs> yes I mean I could like I have thought so much about country music and there's there's a big piece waiting inside of me <laughs> that will come out someday but um I yeah I think like even the ways that someone like Casey Musgraves or other alt country bands so it's like someone like I don't know Jason Isbell if you've heard his music like the way that they try to wield country sounds in a more like in a way that that liberal city dwellers like is really interesting and again I'm not saying like I love them they are some of my favorite artists but what is that turn that makes Casey Musgraves more like 
more palatable. And part of it is, is her lyricism. Part of it is her sound. Part of it is like appearing on the cover of magazines like Fader, which yeah. you know, is like a hipster magazine. But like, what is that slight turn that differentiates her from Carrie Underwood? Um, and part of it is just populism. But I think that like examining that more closely is worth it. Yeah. My last question is always, what are you reading that you'd like to tell people about? Oh, um, so many things. Uh, <laughs> I, I just read Educated by Tara Westover. Ooh. Do you know that? Have you heard of this book? Yes. Tell me what you thought. I loved it. I mean, not only because I'm from Idaho and because I've been doing a lot of reading about more um, kind of fundamentalist Mormons, which she is in the book. But it, So the book is about a woman who grows up totally off the grid in rural southern Idaho and doesn't go to school. Like her dad doesn't believe in any sort of government control, whether that's going to school or wearing seatbelts. And so it's the story of how she eventually finds her way to a PhD program in Cambridge, but like how difficult it is, how essential education and socialization is to like our, the way that we live in the world. Um, and she's an incredible writer. It hits this sweet spot. It, you know, it's sold a mil- so many copies. And I think it's because it's the sort of book that like was the t- New York Times pick of the month for May, but then also mm-hmm. was like a People magazine pick. So it's that incredible intersection of like really deftly and persuasively written, but also like gripping. Because um, like they don't go to doctors. Like, so what do you do when your entire family like gets in a rollover? Like, how do you treat people? Um, how does she finally get into BYU? What does she do when she realizes she's never heard the word Holocaust before? So all of those things, um, I've found it incredible. And it's a sort of, again, kind of like my book, it's like good for you <laughs> in that it's edifying. Um, I mean, every book is edifying, but like it, it's that, that, incredible intersection between informative, but then also gripping. Yes. This book comes with two frames, what is happening and what you think about what is happening are going to be happening at the same time. Yeah. Thank you so, so, so much for doing this interview. I have so enjoyed talking to you. I really appreciate your time. I can't, this has been a wonderful conversation and I cannot wait to, you know, if anyone hears it and wants to talk more, I'd love to. And that brings us to the end of this interview. I want to thank Anne Helen Peterson for hanging out with me and also putting up with the fact that a very large portion of myself was on Team No Chill. Like I said, I'm a very big fan of her writing. and It was an honor to do this interview. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I will have links to a lot of her writing, some of the pieces that we mentioned, and her tiny letter should you wish to sign up. It's really interesting and I highly recommend it. This episode is brought to you by More or Less a Countess by Anna Bradley. The Somerset Sisters, three beautiful, headstrong debutantes in Regency London, are discovering that a bit of scandal is a delightful thing. Violet Somerset was always the bookworm, but when a notorious rake seems intent on pursuing her younger sister, Violet does what any good older sister would do, pretend to be her sister herself to fend him off. This comedy of mistaken identities from author Anna Bradley is a delightful mix of Regency atmosphere, bold characters, and wit. More or Less A Countess by Anna Bradley is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. 
Every episode gets a transcript, and this week's transcript is brought to you by International Guy Paris by Audrey Carlin, the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Calendar Girl series. Parker Ellis, CEO of International Guy, Inc., advises the wealthiest people in the world on life and love. For the right price, he can make anything possible. So when a Parisian perfume heiress calls him, Parker is more than happy to oblige. Unexpectedly left a perfume empire, Sophie isn't ready to be a CEO. That's where Parker steps in. Just a few days with him, and Sophie will be more than ready to take her family company and Paris by storm. But Paris is just the beginning. There is a whole world waiting for Parker, and the woman of Parker's dreams is out there somewhere. He'll find her one day. Dive in to International Guy Paris, the first in Audrey Carlin's sizzling new 12 novella International Guy series. Also available now, International Guy New York, Copenhagen, and Milan. The International Guy series by Audrey Carlin is published by Montlake Romance and is available now wherever books are sold. If you would like to have a look at the podcast Patreon, I would be very, very thankful. Patreon.com slash smartbitches is where you can go to make a monthly pledge to support this here podcast. The Patreon community is the first place I go for question ideas and suggestions when I have an interview scheduled. And they have really great ideas, plus they're wonderful humans. I would love for you to be part of it, so patreon.com slash smartbitches is where you can find all of the details. Are there other ways to support the podcasts that you love? Absolutely! Leave a review however you listen. They make a massive difference in helping people find the different shows. And you can also just subscribe or tell a friend or whatever. If you're hanging out with me each week, I am very thankful. And if you're on the treadmill or on that elliptical thing or working out, you've totally got this. Keep going. You're almost done. You've totally, no, really, you've got it. Keep going. Don't give up. You're going to do great. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is Caravan Palace. This track is called Susie, and it is from their two album set, Caravan Palace and Panic. You can find it on iTunes or Amazon or wherever you buy your fresh and funky music. As always, I will end the episode with a terrible joke, and this is a terrible joke. It's horrible. It's so bad. I love it. What does a thesaurus eat for breakfast? What does a thesaurus eat for breakfast? A synonym roll. <laughs> it's so bad. I love it. Synonym rolls. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> yes, now that I've brought myself back into professional areas of behavior, <laughs> not likely. On behalf of everyone here, I want to wish you the very, very best of reading. Have a great weekend, and we will see you back here next week. <laughs>